0: At 9 a.m. on August 14, 2005, Helios Flight 522 took off from Cyprus for a routine flight on its way to Athens, Greece. Five minutes after the flight took off, the cabin's altitude warning horn began to sound. The pilots began running their checks trying to figure out what was going on and eventually just silenced the alarm, figuring that something hadn't been set properly before takeoff. Seven minutes into the flight, the pilots reported an air conditioning problem. Strange set of problems to be having. Flight altitude, air conditioning, what's going on? Unbeknownst to the pilots, as they continued their ascent up to 34,000 feet, the plane was quickly losing pressure. By 9.23 a.m., 23 minutes after takeoff, the autopilot had brought the plane to its final cruising altitude at 34,000 feet now, a news story reports what happens next. Upon entering Athens' flight information region at 9.37, so about 10 minutes later, the aircraft began circling on autopilot as the further loss of pressure had incapacitated the crew. What the autopilot does if they're, if they're coming into landing, if there's no one to bring the plane into landing, puts it into a holding pattern. So the plane begins circling around the Athens airport at 34,000 feet, waiting for the pilots to put... The, the inputs into the controls to land the plane. With the pilots continuing not to respond to air traffic control messages, two F-16 fighter jets were dispatched to intercept the airplanes. Just a few years after 9-11, what's going on? This plane is not landing, it's not responding. They took off at 11.05 and located the plane at 11.24 a.m. The fighter pilots reported a curious scene in the cockpit. They were able to look into the cockpit and what they saw troubled them immensely. Both pilots were slumped over the controls and looking in through the windows of the plane, all of the the passengers were also incapacitated. But then they noticed a flight attendant with a portable oxygen tank trying to take control of the plane. But tragically, because the plane had been circling, they ran out of fuel and then just minutes later, the plane crashed into a hillside. Tragic story, isn't it? Tragic story of a plane that doesn't have anybody at the controls. There's nobody there who is directing the flight, bringing it into a safe landing. When there's no one in the cockpit at the controls, danger is very imminent. I think all of us would be very troubled if we were on a flight, and the uh, the, the the stewardess came onto the intercom to be like, "Hey, our plane has taken off, um, but our pilot is nowhere to be found. Like he's disappeared, or the pilot has had a heart attack. We don't know what to do. That would be absolutely terrifying." Sometimes does it not feel like history is like a plane without a pilot? It's sort of going on autopilot. It's on its way, you know, sort of going somewhere. But it feels like there's nobody at the controls, and it feels like eventually, sooner or later, it's going to crash into a hillside. Or maybe we feel like we have to rush the cockpit and take it over because whoever's at the controls is doing a terrible, terrible job. Well, in today's text, the the passage we just read, what we will see is the fact that God is indeed sovereign over everything. We're coming into the the last night of Jesus' life before the cross. It's Thursday of the Passion Week. He's going to go to the Last Supper. He's going to be arrested. And in a few hours, he will be standing trial before the Sanhedrin. By 9 a.m. on Friday morning, he's going to be on the cross. We are literally coming to the darkest point in human history. We're coming to the hour in which Satan has his sort of hour of triumph over God, if you will, or so he thinks. We're coming to this point where there's there, this, this horrible plot involving the Sanhedrin and Satan and Judas Iscariot. What's going on? It feels like there's no one at the controls of the plane. And yet we realize that through all of this, God is firmly in control working his plan. That Listen, if he is sovereign over the events leading up to the crucifixion of his son, then surely he is sovereign over the events of your life and my life. Now the reason why we're going to actually go all the way to verse 20, I had the bulletin printed before I, uh, before I fully studied everything out. I realized this text is bound together by a laser focus on Passover. You notice in verse 1, we get this broad statement, the, the Passover drew nigh. Okay, according to Mark's gospel, we're just two days before the Passover, so it's Tuesday or Wednesday of uh, of the Passion Week, depending on how you count the days. So it's drawing nigh, we're getting close to that time. Verse 7, we're told that it is the first day of the Passover celebration. You get Passover, and then after that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts for seven days, so a total of an eight-day festival celebration. And then verse 14 brings us down to the hour of the Passover celebration. So we've got general time frame, day of, specific hour. It's like the text is building up to this climax, which is Jesus celebrating Passover with his disciples. Here's the point this morning. God accomplishes his plans. Through the events that we're going to study here this morning and actually in the coming weeks, we're witnessing God accomplishing the salvation of sinners. And nothing stands in his way. In fact, the God that we serve and worship is a God who accomplishes his plans not in spite of man's evil, but through man's evil. The plots of the Sanhedrin and the whole, the whole nine yards is God's plan to accomplish your salvation and my salvation. Our salvation rests on God successfully carrying out the plan as laid out in this text. So think of this as sort of three divine acts as we walk through these verses together. Starting back in the first few verses, we see that God has control over man's evil. We think A lot of people would say, you know, God is in control, but evil, that's kind of outside of his control. That's sort of, okay, that's all attributable to man. God has sort of nothing to do with it. And we would be careful to recognize that the origin of evil is man's sinful heart, not God's, God's purity or God's holiness. God is holy. God does not tempt people to evil. Nonetheless, the Bible presents a God who exerts control, who is indeed sovereign over evil. Evil is not like a, oops, that entered into the plan, what do I do now? But evil fits into the plan of God. God uses evil to accomplish his his purposes. And so we see him overruling and working through the evil that happens here that is caused by man's sinful heart, but is in fact ordained by God. God is not the cause of the evil, but he is in control over it. So notice what we have going on here. Verse 1 says, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew night, which is also called Passover. If you read back in the Old Testament, there are actually two separate festivals. There's Passover, celebrating Israel's deliverance from the death angel. And then there's the Festival of Unleavened Bread. They had to get out of Egypt so quickly there wasn't time for the dough to rise. And so to remember that, every year they would eat unleavened bread for seven days, a week-long celebration. It's in this setting that we see the chief priests and the scribes. So we've got the, the head priests, the leaders of the temple, and we've got the scribes who are the, the experts in the law. There are two segments of the Sanhedrin. These are the official religious leaders of the people of Israel. And they've been seeking. The, the tense of the word sought is they have been seeking, they were seeking, how they might kill him. So they've been, they've been trying for, for, for chapters now to get rid of Jesus but they've been unable to do it. Why? They feared the people. So you just back up to, just for sake of illustration, look at the end of Luke 19, verse 47. So this is the whole run-up to the Passover. Jesus taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people were seeking to destroy him. So they're, they're, they're trying to figure out a way. How do we get rid of Jesus? How do we assassinate him? How do we silence him? But they could not find what they might do, verse 48, for all the people who were attentive to hear him. So Jesus is popular with the common people. The leaders, however, do not like him. They don't like the fact that he's coming and cleansed the temple. They don't like the fact that he's teaching the people. And they are looking really, really foolish. Look down to chapter 20, verse 19. So Jesus gives that parable of the tenant farmers where he says the vineyard's going to be taken away from you. It's going to be given to the Gentiles. God's going to judge you. And the chief priest... And the scribes, notice these guys just keep showing up. They're just opposing Jesus at every turn. The same hour sought, they're they're, they're trying, they're attempting to lay hands on him, to to, to seize him. And they what? Feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. And then, of course, Luke 21, we have the the clash between Jesus and all the segments of the religious establishment. At this point, they are furious. They, they, They will stop at nothing to see Jesus murdered and to get rid of him. They're driven by fear. They're driven by jealousy. They're driven by anger. There is nothing righteous in their motivation. It is pure pride and evil and wickedness that is driving them. So how are they going to get rid of Jesus? If all the people love Jesus, that Jesus is popular, he's surrounded by people, they don't want to start a riot. Because if a riot comes along, then the Romans will sweep through, and their fear, according to John 11, is the Romans will take away our place, will lose our status if we can't sort of keep control of, keep, keep a lid on events. Well, enter Judas, verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. What they're going to need is an inside man who can lead them to Jesus when the crowds aren't around. They need someone who can hand Jesus over to them quietly when nobody is watching, and then they can hush, hush, disappear Jesus, and no one will be any the wiser. And that's precisely what they will do. They will arrest him in the middle of the night. They'll put him on trial, and then by, by dawn they've already condemned him. And by 9 a.m. they already have him on the cross while everybody is still sleeping off their Passover feast. So what's, what's going on here with Judas? Well, we're told that he's one of the 12. He's one of the 12 apostles. According to John's gospel, he is the treasurer of the group. He has the bag, which means he is trusted. None of the disciples are like, oh yeah, Judas, he's, we, we really have questions about him. He looked the part. He looked like a faithful follower of Jesus. He gave credence to what Jesus said. He would have preached and called people to believe in Jesus. He would have performed miracles. He looked like an apostle. And he was, in fact, the entire time a fraud. So we find out that he's inspired by Satan. Satan entered into Judas. Now, don't read that and think that Judas now just sort of becomes a robot and loses all agency, that he's just kind of walking around and his eyes are rolled back into his head and horns have grown on him, like his eyes are flashing. That's not the idea. Satan enters in through a doorway into, into Judas's soul. And the doorway through which he enters is the doorway of greed. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly, but we know the context here. If you read Mark's account, what has just happened is Jesus has had dinner at Mary and Martha's house. Uh, Mary has come and has taken the expensive ointment that's worth a year's wage, has dumped it on Jesus, has, has offered this a sacrifice, and Judas has seen that and been like, what a colossal waste. All of these people think Jesus is amazing, but he's not doing what we think he will, and that's it. That's the last straw for Judas. He's thinking, that money could have been given to the poor, which means give the money to, 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 to the treasure chest that I have so he can continue pilfering from it. According to John thirteen, uh, John 12, rather, verse 6, and John 13, verse 29, Judas was stealing from the offerings the entire time. He's embezzling money. He's driven by greed, and notice what they do to get him to, to hand him over. He went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them, and they were glad, and covenanted to give him what? Money. 30 pieces of silver, we're told, in Matthew. So Judas is inspired by Satan, but Judas is motivated by money, love. One of the reasons I can say Judas has agency in this is verse 4, and he went his way. Judas is not being sought out by the religious leaders. He's seeking them out. It's not like they kind of buttonhole him, push him into a corner, and say, hey, we'll hurt your family. No, no, no. He does this willingly. I'm going to hand Jesus over, and I'm going to get rich in the process. You can understand why he might do this. The chief priests, the the temple captains in verse 6, these are sort of the the head of the temple police. They're they're rich people. They're well-off people. They have the ability to to make Judas rich, to do good things for him. He's attracted to their, their money, to their power. So what does he agree to do? He agrees to hand Jesus over in exchange for money. The doorway into his soul was labeled Greed. The greed was present all along. By the way, it's not just Judas. Luke tells another story in Acts chapter 5 of another group of people, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Satan had deceived them to lie into the Holy Ghost. What's driving them? Greed. Throughout Luke's gospel, Luke has warned again and again and again the dangers of covetousness and greed. Back in Luke 12, verse 35, he says, Take take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesses. He tells the story about the guy who builds the barns, tears them down to have bigger barns. He talks about the rich man and Lazarus. He warns again and again and again of the deadly danger of greed and envy. I think this should be really, really sobering to you and to me. Because, listen, greed is not one of those sins that we put at the top of the list of sins that are Deadly destructive. I think if we were to poll sort of conservative Christians today, it be like, so what is really wrong with America? You know, what are the big sins in our culture that's going to bring God's judgment down on our nation? Greed's probably not in the top ten. Yet the Bible warns against this sin more frequently than we would even begin to imagine. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul warns us that the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil. This love of money will, will, will bring you along to all these different places. That's what's making Judas tick. Judas is a cautionary tale to us. And so here's one of these sins that's one of the respectable sins. We tend to look at greed as the grimy grease that keeps the engine of prosperity running, right? We're like, okay, if it weren't for greed, capitalism wouldn't really work, so it's sort of a necessary evil, we'll just overlook it. God looks at greed as idolatry. A serious, serious sin that if it is not dealt with will send you to hell. That's how serious this is. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, Colossians tells us. So if you don't think greed is a serious sin. Look at Judas. Look at the still warm corpses of Ananias and Sapphira as they lay dead at the feet of the apostle Peter. Greed that led them to lie to the Holy Spirit. Listen, a child can be greedy about as fish crackers. And an adult can be greedy regarding their 401k. Greed is not about the amount, it is about the affections. You say, oh, greed, that's rich billionaires who live in, in, in high-rise you know, apartments, penthouses in, in Manhattan. You can have very little and still be greedy. Greed's a serious, serious sin. It's about the affections, not the amount. It's not about the car that you drive, but about the desires that drive you. Now, what does this all have to do with the sovereignty of God? Well, Jesus came into this world to go to the cross. That is plan A. And for Jesus to go to the cross, he must be handed over to the religious leaders. Jesus must be betrayed. He must be crucified. You say, well, maybe this was just sort of God fitting this into into his plan. Go over with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Again, this is... Luke writing this, so there is consistency in his theology. In Luke chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, just mere weeks later. And I can imagine that some of the people who were part of this plot are in the audience. Okay, this is not like ancient history, people who were there, who were there for the rejection of Jesus. So look at what he says in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. Him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You notice who he, Notice what he says there. He says, okay, you, you killed Jesus. You killed the Messiah. You are responsible for that evil. The chief priest responsible before God for their evil. Judas, responsible before God for his evil. Yet, Judas's greed, yet the high priest's hatred of Jesus was ordained by God. That's not me saying it, that's Peter saying that. Jesus was delivered by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. This is not just God knew that this would happen in advance. He knows this because he determined that it would happen. Okay, so do you have a category for that in your theology a God who actually ordains evil to happen. See, a lot of the objection that comes up right now is if God ordains evil, that makes God responsible for evil. But the Bible puts both of these truths side by side. God ordains evil, but he is not the cause of it. God factors evil and uses evil for his plan and holds guilty sinners accountable and responsible for their evil. The people of Israel would be judged for this. You want another illustration? Read Isaiah 10. God's like, I'm going to use the Assyrian Empire as the rod of my judgment. So they're going to come through. They're going to judge all these nations. They're going to conquer. They're going to destroy. And God's like, I've ordained that to happen. And then he says, now, they don't know what's going on. They're doing this out of the greed and wickedness of their own hearts. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn around and judge them for the greed and wickedness of their own hearts. He says, I'm using them like an axe in my hand. And then I will judge them for the evil that they do. Well, I I don't like that. That's what the Bible says. That, that God ordains evil, God overrules evil, and God judges and hates evil. So we, we, we learn that in James chapter 1, God does not tempt any man with evil. God did not have to come along and make Judas do something and went again. Judas's heart was already greedy. None of us are born into this world with a heart that is good. Our hearts naturally go after evil. God's not the cause. The cause of evil is our own sinful heart, but God plans and ordains the evil. Now think about how this can be an encouragement. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible does not pull punches when it comes to the evil of society and the depravity of the human heart. It doesn't. It, it it paints it in very bleak and clear colors. Evil is prevalent. I think this passage pulls the curtain back on just how wicked the human heart can be. Here's God in the flesh, and what are they doing? Let's figure out how to murder him. Here's God in the flesh. Judas knows that. Let me sell him out for a little bit of money. The human heart is evil. Our society is evil. Let me just say it bluntly. Our society is wicked. We can see it in the world around us. We we see it in the wickedness of the transgender ideology. We see it in a culture that is completely pornified and that normalizes sexual promiscuity. We see all ten of the Ten Commandments rejected with impunity and often with celebration. We see Satan, the god of this world, blinding hearts to the gospel. What a mess! And we all know that, and it's very easy at that point to then get very discouraged. It's easy at that point to become fearful. It's easy at that point to become angry and start raging at the culture. But if we can take hold of this truth that God is sovereign even over human evil, we can then do what Psalm 37 says, fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down as the green grass and wither as the green herb. If God is ordaining and overruling every evil actor in the story, Judas included, that means that even the evil in this world today is under the control of God. It means we don't take it lightly, but we recognize that God is greater than the evil. I say that because I think we as Christians tend to become fearful and angry. We tend to say, when there's evil around us, maybe we need to pull back. Maybe we need to retreat. Maybe we need to hide. Maybe we try, need to try and shield ourselves from the evil around us. But if we recognize what the Bible says, God is sovereign over it, we can be hopeful even when the light is going out, we can be optimistic in the sense that we know that God wins in the end, and we can raise our children. Sometimes people are like, oh man, I don't want to raise kids in this world. I'm, I'm excited to raise Timothy. Even though this world is evil, yeah, he's going into an evil world, and guess what? The world has always been evil. And he'll have an opportunity to shine as a light, and he might even have the opportunity to suffer for Jesus when he's older. And that's a good thing, because God is sovereign even over the evil. Sometimes I wonder if Christians actually believe that God is sovereign because of the way that we just despair when we look at the evil around us. I'm not saying pretend that the evil's not evil. We can look it full in the face and say, and God is in control over it. But let's move on to this next divine act. We see God here overruling man's evil. But now we come to the preparation of the Passover we got Peter and John. What a contrast. Judas is going out. These guys are getting sent out. What a contrast between the faithless Judas and the faithful disciples. By the way, these guys aren't perfect. They'll they'll mess up pretty royally before the night is over. But the point being is they obey and they follow Jesus, even though there are failures in their lives. The second divine act here that we see is that God orchestrates the details. God has control not only over man's evil, but over life's daily details. You see, sometimes people will say, okay, I believe that God is sovereign. And what people mean by that, they'll say, well, God's sovereignty is like a big cruise ship. It's on its way to a certain destination. It's on its way to, let's say, the Bahamas. It's a destination settled, but what you do on the cruise ship is totally up to you, and the details are sort of left up to us to color in between the lines. What this text shows us is that even the details, not just the destination, not just the big picture stuff, but the little picture stuff, is under God's control. So we look at this. We have the day of Passover, uh, the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed in verse 7. So it's now Thursday of the Passion Week. It's now the day, it's called the 14th of Nisan. It begins at sundown. That's the day of Passover. It's around March, April, depending on how their calendar is sort of a lunar-type calendar, so it doesn't quite line up perfectly. But it's the Passover time. And on that Thursday afternoon... Before Passover formally kicks off at sundown, there is a time called Between the Evenings. It's sort of late in the afternoon where every Jewish family would bring a lamb to the temple court. They would slaughter the lamb at the temple court. Then they would take the lamb home. They would roast it. They would cook dinner. And then when the sun went down, the family would gather together to celebrate the Passover meal and remember what God had done in delivering Israel from Egypt. But what I want to draw your attention to is the emphasis here on timing. Jesus is not just like, hey, we'll just celebrate the Passover any old day. It's fine. We can do what we want. This is the time when the Passover must be killed. This is not just a must because it was required by the law. It's a must because it's required by God's plan. Jesus must celebrate Passover with his disciples. The, the, The very details down to the second of his life are orchestrated by God. There's something important about Passover, There's a reason why Luke is telling the story in such a way to say, Passover, really important. Why? Because Jesus will be the final Passover lamb. Just as the lambs were slaughtered to spare the firstborn in Egypt, Jesus will be slain to spare and to save and to rescue his people under the new covenant. He's going to be the final Passover lamb. Every Passover lamb that had been offered for 1,500 years leading up to this point had pointed to Jesus. Every sacrifice that had been offered, every ounce of blood that had been, had been spilled at that, at that altar was pointing towards the cross. His death would be the once for all time sacrifice to take away sin forever. The when really matters. The timing really matters here. So he sends Peter and he says, go prepare the Passover that we may eat. Oh, that's quick. Go, go, you know, go through the little drive-through, grab Passover. No, no, this is a really big job. There's Jesus... There's the apostles, there's at least 13 people, there's probably others who are there with them. If you've ever cooked a meal for 13 people, it's not something you just sort of whip up like, oh, you're coming over in five minutes, we'll we'll have it ready. There's a lot of planning involved, there's a lot of work involved. They would have had to get the sheep, they would have had to slaughter it, they would have had to cook it, they would have had to get the bitter herbs. And beyond that, none of them live in Jerusalem, so they don't have anywhere to celebrate it. By the way, the Old Testament law not only required the when, 14th of Nisan, it required the where. Deuteronomy 16 says, you will celebrate this in the place that God will appoint. Passover had to be celebrated within the city limits of Jerusalem. So they can't just say, hey, we'll go celebrate down the road in Bethlehem, or we'll just do it in Nazareth. Had to be celebrated where? The when and the where required by God and orchestrated by him. Listen, Jerusalem's a big place. There's 50,000 people who live in the city at this point. And there's probably 250,000 people who are there for the Passover. So imagine if the population of Mobile quadrupled overnight, like everybody in Alabama showed up, and then you're like, oh, go find a place for us to have dinner. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, I remember being on vacation as a kid, and we were driving through Carson City, Nevada. Um, don't ever go. There's nothing there. Anyway, we're like, hey, we'll stay the night in Carson City. It's the capital of Nevada, a great place. Let's, let's do this. Well, apparently there was a gem convention going on. Like, I'm not making those gem convention, like a rock, like people go and look at rocks. And every stinking hotel in that town was full. Like, no no room in, okay, if the city of Carson City could fill up for a gem convention, Jerusalem is packed to the gills and spilling over, people camping out on the side of the Mount of Olives. So go find a place, good luck, tight tight real estate market, you know, there's not much space that is around Which makes this all the more incredible. They ask the question in verse 9, where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said, go into the city, you'll meet the guy with the pot, follow him to his house, go talk to the person, and you're going to find a room, not that's just available, that's already ready to go. Okay, this isn't just coincidence. This isn't just Jesus like, he lined this guy up and been like, the pot will be the secret signal. Like, no, 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 this is divine foreknowledge. This is Jesus as God in the flesh orchestrating this down to the final detail. Normally, men did not carry water pots. That was women's work in the Bible. Sorry, that's not like, that's just the way it was. The, the women would go to the wells. That's why you see Rebecca at the well. That's why Moses meets his wife at a well. That's why the woman at the well is there in Samaria. That's what the women did. I don't know what the men were doing, but the women had to go get the water and lug this heavy water jug back to the house. So the fact that there's a guy with a water jug would be a signal. Okay, That, that particular guy to a particular house that has a particular upstairs room that has space and that, according to verse 12, is already furnished. It's already got the the, the carpets and the couches and the table and everything ready to go for them to prepare the meal. Here's the point. Jesus perfectly predicted the precise location of a single guy with a water pot. And he leads the disciples to the prepared place to eat Passover. None of this is a mistake. This is to ensure that God's perfect plan would be fulfilled. Remember Judas? He's looking for an opportunity to get rid of Jesus. What a better place than if he knows when and where they're going to have Passover. He can be like, hey guys, 6 o'clock tonight, over here on Ben Yehuda Avenue, come come, come, arrest him." Since it's Peter and John doing it, Judas has no idea. He's going to, be, he's going to find out when everyone else finds out where it's going to be. Jesus has to have Passover with his disciples. There's a bunch that he has to convey to them, a bunch that he has to teach them. That must happen. So since Judas isn't privy to the planning, Jesus would not be prematurely arrested. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Thank you for coming, by the way. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, we, We love to have people come and visit and people who have questions. Maybe you're a bit skeptical about Jesus of Nazareth. One of the things that emerges from the Gospels is whenever Jesus predicts the future, he always gets it right Every time, there's no account of Jesus making a prediction about the future where he gets it wrong. He's not like these so-called prophets that that claim the name of Jesus who go on to TBN and say crazy stuff that never happens. Everything he says comes to pass. That's something you have to wrestle with to say, who is this Jesus of Nazareth if he makes predictions and they happen exactly as he said they would? If he gets these kinds of things right, why would you doubt his statements in other areas? Why would you say, yeah, I like Jesus of Nazareth, I just don't like the things he has to say about marriage? Or Jesus of Nazareth, yeah, sure, he speaks authoritatively about the future, but the stuff about hell is a little heavy for me. I'm going to just sort of set that to, to the side. If Jesus speaks with this kind of authority, if he really does, if he really speaks with this kind of authority, does that not mean that everything he says has great weight and should be taken seriously in our lives? But again, what does this show us about God's sovereignty? According to Ephesians 1 and verse 11, God is working some things according to the counsel of his will. No, 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 no it doesn't say that. God is working the big things according to the counsel of his will. No, Ephesians 1.11 says God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. By the way, that's in the context of God saving his people. All of it, all things, That is, that, I take that to be to mean all things. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the plan that he established in eternity past. He is carrying out perfectly in time. And he is working everything according to that plan. Everything that happens, therefore, is part of that all the way down to the details. Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson the hard way. He sort of got arrogant and, and stuck up, and what happened? He got turned into an animal, effectively, for seven years. And at the end of that, he says, Now I know that God rules in the, in the kingdom of men. And God does whatever he wants, and no one can say to him, What doest thou? Nobody has veto power over God. God has, does not have to seek permission from anyone. God is not held hostage by our decisions or our preferences or our will. Now, that can be really bad news or really good news. If you're a control freak, that's really bad news. By the way, we are all, on some level, constitutionally, control freaks. We want to be in charge. We like to think of ourselves as the puppet masters. Like We're sort of going to work these things out. We try to manipulate circumstances and details to get what we want. We think that if I can just talk to the right people, pull the right strings, hit the right buttons, and flip the right switches, I can get what I want. I just started reading a book about... How to Talk to Anyone is the name of the book. And I thought it would be about like, hey, how to be a better conversationalist. The book starts with, here's how to get anything you want out of anybody. It's like, here's a master class in manipulation. And listen, you might be able to manipulate people, but there are a trillion circumstances in life that you have Zippo control over. You might say, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and this. Sometimes we as parents can think that, okay, if I can control all of the environmental factors around my kid, I can put in inputs A, B, and C, and get the result that I want. doesn't really work that way. We don't have the capacity to, 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 to manipulate those circumstances. We don't have the capacity to, to change hearts. We don't have the ability to make our spouse be the way that we want them to be, and we ought to stop trying. Be faithful in the responsibilities God's given to you, but recognize He's ultimately the one who is sovereign over these things. Maybe it's time to say, I'm going to take my hands off. I'm going to be faithful in what he's called me to do, but I can't control all of these things. Only God can. But this can also be really good news. If you're one of those people who very much realizes I'm not in control and I feel like the weight of the world is sort of weighing on my shoulders, good news is the weight of the world does not have to weigh on your shoulders. right? This is really good news for people who have a hard time, sort of like, how do I make a decision to know that God is in control? Listen, we are responsible before God for what we do, so don't hear me saying that what you do doesn't matter. Peter and John had to obey Jesus and go to where Jesus told them to do. It wasn't like, well, this is just going to happen automatically. Nonetheless, maybe our decisions and our actions are less decisive than we would like to think. Maybe the things that we do that we think, this will change all of history and all of these events, maybe is not quite as decisive as we would like to believe. So maybe you're in a place, let me speak to single people for a second. You're single, and maybe you are wondering, I missed my opportunity at getting married because I went to college instead of going into the workforce or went into the workforce instead of going to college. And if I had done that differently, then my, my whole life course would have been different. Listen, your decision did not surprise God. right? It's not that God is caught off guard to be like, yep, you missed my perfect will for your life because there was something you didn't know and couldn't have known. God does not require us, beloved, to have perfect knowledge of his secret will and his plan for history before we make a decision. What he does require of us is that we know his word and that we obey his word. This is the 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 secret things belong to God, the way he's going to carry out all of the details in human history. But the revealed things, what he has told us, is what we are responsible for. I think that could be really, really good news if you are on the horns of a difficult decision. What does God require of you? Not to have it all figured out and to make a perfect decision. What he calls of you calls you to is to simply obey his word and recognize the details he will carry out. So don't feel like one wrong step, and maybe you're on the other end of things and you're making decisions about retirement and I'm going to live somewhere else and these sort of family. Sometimes we think that if I make one wrong step, I have messed up God's perfect plan for my life. We have this idea that God's, God's plan for our lives is like a tightrope over Niagara Falls. Remember the guy who did that a few years ago? Where, I've got to go on this tightrope and I've got to make every decision just right and if I stray one centimeter to the right, it's ah, down into the, the water, for, fall below and I've forever ruined God's plan. That's not how, what does that say about God? No, no. God is a loving, generous God. His will is like a super highway with different lanes and speeds. It says obey me and there's different speeds that we can be operating at and different lanes we can go in. Here's my point. If if we recognize that God is sovereign, wow, that takes the pressure off of us. So Proverbs 16 says, commit thy works unto the Lord and thy plans. Your thoughts will be established. There are many plans in the heart of man, but the plans of God, those will stand. Proverbs 16 in verse 9. That's comforting, isn't it? Now I want to just dip dip our toes into this final point and we'll pick up with this next time because there's, there's a lot here that I don't want us just to speed over. But we come to the Passover celebration itself and we see God's control over salvation's plan. We see God executing his plan. Jesus says in verse 15, With desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now here's the, here's the simple point I want to make here. In the Last Supper, this is not just Jesus saying, man, I really want to have one good final meal before I'm executed like a criminal on on death row. Like, hey, you get to have your hamburger steak. or," No, this is the coalescing of all of history into a single moment. Passover, what does that represent? God's dealings with Israel in the Old Covenant bringing them out of Egypt. Jesus is going to take this Passover celebration and completely... Reinterpret it and give it a brand new sense of meaning. Says, "Okay, you've been looking back and remembering what God did in the past. I'm going to give this new meaning in the present, and you're going to do this thing until I come. This remembrance, and he transforms Passover into communion, which goes from being an annual celebration to being a regular celebration when, when God's, whenever people, God's people, gather." He says, you're going to do this until the, the kingdom comes. You see how we have past, present, and future. All of these threads coming together into one place. All of the roads intersecting into a single square. All of God's plans for human history coming together in a single meal. That's pretty incredible. right? That's quite remarkable. And it's not the meal per se, but it's what the meal represents. Jesus giving his life for the sins of the world and spilling his blood to establish a new covenant. Here's the point that I want to make. We've talked about God overruling evil. We've talked about God's sovereignty in the details. But here we see God's sovereignty over the entire sweep of human history. And at the very center of it stands the cross of Christ. At the very center of it stands the person of Jesus Christ. And he's going to take this image and say, my body's broken for you in your place, and my blood is spilled to establish a new covenant to give you a new relationship and a new beginning and a new standing with God. Ultimately, God exercises his sovereignty. Yes, for his glory, and the way that he does it is by saving us through the blood of Jesus. Why does Jesus have to go to the cross? Why is all of this necessary? This is necessary because you and I, as sons and daughters of Adam, are sinners. And the way we know that we're sinners is we sin. We violate God's law. We love lies. We love money. We're greedy like Judas. We're we're, we're prideful like those religious leaders. There's idols in our hearts. Our hearts are just belching out idolatry and love for self. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That is who we are. We're born into this world not with a nice morally neutral heart that could go one way or the other, and if we can manipulate circumstances just right, we'll be good, nice people. We get a good edu- No, no, no. Our hearts are bent away from God. Out of the heart comes evil and sin. We've got a real terrible problem, and because of our sin problem, there's a penalty that must be paid. And what the rest of the Gospel of Luke is about is how Jesus pays that penalty. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, So this is my body which is given for you. Body given for you. In our place, our sin demands the wrath of a holy God. And Jesus going to the cross, it's like here, here's you and me standing and we're facing God's wrath. And Jesus is like, let me slide in there and I will bear that, that, that wrath for you. And so all of his righteousness and all of his goodness and all of his mercy and love become ours, and he takes all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the judgment that rightly belong to us. And that is what human history is all about. Now, Jesus references here, I'm not going to drink of this or eat of this again until the kingdom comes. Human history is going somewhere. And it's not just randomly going somewhere off into this darkness where some cabal will take over and then we'll be like, it's all over. No, where is human history going? Where does the road end? It ends at God reigning over all things through Christ. He's going to one day return. He's going to one day destroy all of his enemies and establish a kingdom on this earth. And there's going to be this great banquet feast in heaven. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's called in, in Isaiah 25 this tremendous banquet on the Lees. Jesus here calls it Passover, the fulfillment of everything. God's working out his plan for human history. So see the layers of God's sovereignty? It's not enough just to say God is sort of in control in some distant, he's way up in the control room somewhere, and he'll intervene if things get out of hand. (laughs) He's in control even over the evil, even over the details, and over the grand sweep of human history. My point this morning is there is someone at the controls. There's someone at the cockpit. Plane's not just sort of circling the airport indefinitely. He's going to bring it down onto the tarmac. He's going to bring us home. And so we can trust him. And I mean, really, not just an a I trust God, you know, not in a vague Hallmark card greeting kind of way. What are the things that you were afraid of this morning? What are your fears? Maybe they're about your health. Maybe they're about your family. Maybe they're about your future. Maybe it's about money. Maybe it's about the upcoming holidays and just facing the gnawing loneliness is coming up. What if you fell into the arms of a God who is completely sovereign? A God who is completely in control? That you let the, the sovereignty of God not be something uh, something that we argue about and debate, because it's been debated through history, but a soft pillow that you put your head on and go to sleep to every night? What if we said, this is what I'm going to rest in when fears come along, that my God is good And he is completely in control. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer?